Back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick while giving my commentary. And in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Philip K. Dick's 1959 novel, Time Out of Joint. This is the fourth episode on this of my extended review of this novel, so I urge you to go back and listen to the previous three episodes before starting this one. But if you just want to jump in at this point, I will tell you a little bit of my overall thoughts about this story. This is really, I think, a breakthrough novel for Dick. I, I think Eye in the Sky does this a bit too, but Eye in the Sky is a little bit more clunkier in design and a little bit more like in your face, kind of Dick gives away everything pretty early in that story. By the first third of the novel, you sort of know what's going on. And then he's kind of playing with that idea. But there's nothing really new from that point on. This novel really unfolds much more like a mystery. We really feel the anxiety and the tension that the characters go through. We kind of go through different phases of his understanding of what's happening to him. And it's just a much kind of better look at the shifting realities because you kind of feel them a lot more and it's, it's less abrupt. I think in Eye in the Sky, you kind of jump from one world to another. In this one, everything is more shifty. And I think it's a better representation of that idea. And that's what really makes it a great book. And yes, I think Man in the High Castle does this well too, but there it's so meta. I mean, it's it's not it's not as much kind of plot based it's it's hard I'll, I'll describe that novel when i get to it and it's going to be a little bit before we look at the man in high castle but it it deals with this these themes on a much more philosophical and abstract basis this is really about this the experiences of one man as he learns that the world he lives in is not what he expects now this is now Dick has been working with this idea of shifting realities for a while by this point. He really of course is in a lot of his stories, but it really comes out in in the novels first in Cosmic Puppets. And there you have gods kind of fighting it out and then transforming realities in the context of kind of divine crises and struggles. And it's all kind of based in a Zoroastrian universe with a good deity and an evil destroyer de deity. And then an eye in the sky it's more about individual subjectivities. And I think what makes that novel so great is it really explores this idea of how we each live in our own distinct mental realm and that we really can't communicate or understand each other fully. Time Out of Joint, though, looks at all this much more politically and we find a consciously created false reality. And yes, there are internal psychological issues in it as well. In fact, that's where we think the novel's going for much of the story. But in the end, we learn that it's really much more political, even if it is based on kind of an individual subjective delusion and I think Dick combines the political and the subjective really well in in this story so anyways um as I said it's really a well-constructed novel there's almost there's not that much um exposition I mean yet at the end there's some I think Dick sort of kind of runs out of time and he has to 
he's kind of trapped and he, he needs people just kind of to reveal to the reader and to the character what's up, what's going on. But that really doesn't happen until chapter 13 and 14 to the end where you start to get this exposition. Um, so he really holds off on this a little bit. And he was much more exposition driven than some of his other stories. And I think that's really a nice element of this. Each realization, at least in the first part of the story, the first three quarters of it anyways, is really earned and struggled. And there's a struggle involved in getting it. Truth really unfolds slowly chapter by chapter. So who are our characters? We really have uh, just a handful here. It's, it's quite an intimate story, actually. Our, our main characters are Regal Gum, who is a single man living this curious life as a contest winner in a newspaper. And the contest is called Where Will the Little Green Man Be Next? And his job is just to put on a chart, kind of a graph, where the little green man will be. And if he guesses right, he wins. And he's guessed right many, many days um, in a row. At least that's the story we're given. And and he makes money from this. He gets like a paycheck because he keeps winning. Um, it's obviously not random because he couldn't keep winning if it was fully random. So he's somewhat, he's discovered the pattern. That's what he's good at. And he's surrounded by his family. He's got his sister, Margot, his brother, in-law Vic and they have a child named Sammy and these characters also realize that the world they're living in is is shifting and things aren't what they expect and then there's these neighbors called Bill and Junie Black and then there's all the people in the town he lives in a very suburban town very classy like basically a Levitt town is where he lives and I, I think it's called Old Town and it's just a generic suburban town. In fact, it doesn't have a location. And this becomes an important plot point. And it's nothing the characters think about. They don't really care where they are. And I think this is something something Dick sort of does in the story of The Commuter, where there's this idea that, you know, where these suburban towns are don't matter. They're all essentially the same and interchangeable. So anyways, the first chapters of this novel, we're, we're introduced to these characters. Vic works in a grocery store. Now, everyone has very conventional kind of boring lives. Regal is the most interesting because he just he's a man who works at home doing these stupid newspaper contests. But Margo's a housewife. Regal spends his days preparing each day's entry. It takes him sometimes six, eight, ten hours to do. And he's kind of become a local celebrity. And early on, it's just he's the winner of the contest. And later on, his this celebrity gets reinterpreted in different ways. And he starts to realize and start to think that he's really the center of of the universe so we do learn that there, there's strange things in this world i'm not going to go through all of them but things that if we read carefully we observe don't match our world and i think one good example and this comes up later on in the story as well is that uncle tom's cabin has only been recently pu published it's this novel's ostensibly set in 1985 and he's told through a book of the Monk Club that Uncle Tom's Cabin is published and it's a historical fiction. There's other things too, like Merrill Monroe doesn't exist in his world. Radios don't exist. So one night the Blacks visit for dinner. Bill Black is a very conventional 1950s man, but it seems like he tries too hard and he's putting on airs. Um, they play poker that night and Vic has a very strange thing happen to him. And this is the first really upfront kind of oddity we experience and that's he he reaches for the light cord and i don't know if you remember these i, I even had them when i was young and in, in, in my house these kind of they're all in the basement though in these pull down light cords right where the the on off switch is connected right to the light and he pulls for it and it's not there and then he realizes that he has a 
a switch on the wall and he, he it's really an odd experience and they talk about these odd experiences people have like sometimes you think there's four steps but there's only three and you almost fall on your head now after this happens Regal gum is visited by someone in the newspaper who helped him revise his previous day submission and he's had a special deal with the newspaper which allows him to guess multiple times and he's actually you know why he's got the special deal is not really explained at this point now he goes to visit Junie Black on this day and he flirts with her and tries to seduce her and it's revealed at this point that he really has a thing for this neighbor woman who is presented to us as a very a bit of a bimbo actually she's good looking but she's not that smart and doesn't have much to offer someone of Regal Gum's intellect and, and intelligence so while he's he fails to seduce her but you know he does go to the soda stand to buy her soda and then when he gets there it disappears leaving a strip of paper behind that just says like soda stand and this is not the first time this happened to him now later sammy nielsen finds some of these small strips of paper in a junkyard and he shows these to raggle gum and to his father vic and then they're like this is interesting so they go out to this junkyard and they find old magazines in a phone book and the phone book reveals numbers that don't make any sense the magazines talk about people they don't know particularly Marilyn Monroe none of them have heard of him even though she's apparently a celebrity Bill Black we learn around this time in the story is actually some kind of special agent he's got a special relationship that's he, his job in the water plant is his job in like some like a utilities worker but that's not his real duty he's he's talking to this guy mr lowry who runs the newspaper contest and he's worried he expresses his worry that regal gum is going sane again bill goes to visit regal to basically intervene and see if he can stop whatever sanity is re-emerging in regal gum's mind and he basically tries to cover for what he found he says this phone book is normal and he takes it and then he says marilyn monroe yeah she's perfectly real and you just never heard of her before now that night a woman named mrs keitelbein arrives to promote civil defense and recruits regal gum into the program although regal gum joined really because he wants he he heard that Junie black wanted wanted recommended him and he thought this is all an excuse to to meet him one-on-one -on -one and kind of get some alone time together now sammy working on his crystal radios starts to hear strange voices and he builds up this theory that he's really that they are being spied on by outside forces in fact he's the first to really introduce this idea that there's bad guys out there spying on them and now at the time it seems like he's just a regular cold war kid who who's looking out for reds but it turns out that there are forces out there watching these people now bill black reports back to lowry that they're really close to losing Ragel. Bill fears he's becoming sane and just how close they got to losing Raggle. Had Raggle looked up his own name in that phone book, he would have found he was actually a business owner and it wouldn't have fit with his understanding of his existence. So what else happens? Um, well, at one point, Raggle goes to visit Mrs. Cuddlebine and he's basically trying to find out if Junie Black's going to be in the civil defense course and he's frustrated in this, but he... Mrs. Cuddlebine kind of has these all these strange conversations with them that are really about his past in the military, a little bit about civil defense. He gets Raglegum to help his her son move some furniture up to his room and shows him this model. But then Raglegum leaves. 
Now, meanwhile, Vic does a psychological experiment at work that seemed to him to suggest that all the people in the grocery store really have the same training or kind of the same programming. He basically says, everyone run, and they all run to the same place. And that we wouldn't normally expect to happen. You'd expect some people to run out the door, some people to run in all directions. But they all ran to the same place. And this leads him to believe that they all essentially have the same programming. Although he doesn't really realize it's programming. Now, on his way home, though, he starts to buy into what Regal's saying about maybe the world isn't real. And he's experimenting with some of Regal's philosophy that he's been sharing with him. And Regal was particularly interested in, in this idea that the world is real based on how we represent it and experience it. And that, that's, that's reality for us and that we all kind of have our own subjectivities. And this goes back to something Dick played with in Eye in the Sky, of course. He tries this and he actually is able to make the bus kind of fade out and become translucent. And the people, most of the people on the bus are just like scarecrows, yet there is a real driver. He can't really explain what all this means, but he does come back to report on this and he finds his entire family is up in his son's clubhouse listening to the voices from the radio. Raggle confirms that these voices are military and he actually hears them talking about him directly. So Raggle becomes increasingly convinced that he's the center of a conspiracy, maybe the center of the world. And he tries to leave at this point. And the details on this are, are kind of interesting. I don't know how important they are to the whole picture. It's just, it's his first attempt, overt attempt to kind of get out of this town and see what's out there. And this idea that he has to get away because people are watching him and this world is somewhat fake. So his goal is to get to the Greyhound station. And he's constantly frustrated on his way there. And he eventually meets up with some soldiers who want to get back to their base because they're afraid they're going to be AWOL. Raggle tries to help them and kind of bums a ride off them, but their car is broken. They need It's got a flat tire, so Raggle borrows a pickup truck from a gas station attendant and drives away. And then he just bolts because he finds he's being tailed by the police. So he bolts and he goes to this house. And the house, it's on the hill. And there's a man and a woman there, a woman and her son. And they look like the Keitelbinds to him. But, he, but they call themselves the Kesselmans. And this is actually a plot point that, that comes up through this, this kind of confusion between the Cottleblinds and the Kesselmans is something that comes up a lot in the last third of the story. He gives them this false story, but then they try to get him drunk. And Regal is very suspicious that they're part of whatever conspiracy is out there against him. And then he locks them up in the closet and he looks around. He finds a copy of an old phone book, that the same one he found before. And he returns to free them, but he found that they escaped by drilling a hole in the back of the closet, which seemed pretty sophisticated to him. Instead of fleeing, though, he just kind of looks around some more. And Ragel finds that he's not only famous, he was Time's Man of the Year at one point. And just as he realizes this and he finds this out, he's captured by a group of men and drugged and, and thrown in the car. And that's where I left off in... The previous episode and that takes us to the first nine chapters of time out of joint so now let's look at the next three let's look at chapters 10 11 12 and at this point we're nearing the end of the story but we're still not going to know actually what's going on but we're going to get right to the cusp of it um but so anyways what's what happens in chapters 10 through 12 let's look at that now so after these events and the house on the hill Ragel wakes up and he basically doesn't remember anything and it, it's kind of like a drunken 
you know, blackout or something. He he was sort of drinking. They were trying to get him drunk on Jack Daniels. Another thing that doesn't exist in Old Town but seems to exist in the world outside. You know, radios was another thing he found out. He was surprised that this house on the hill had all these radios. And in Raggle Gum's world, it's very efficient. So once they invented TVs, they got rid of radios. While in the real world, you know, people kept both in the house. But he wakes up and Vic reports that a large cab driver dropped him off. He was found in a bar and, and basically drunk. And they, they kind of roughed him up and, and and brought him back. In fact, charging Vic for the for the cab fare. So this dramatic test of the limits of the world that he lived in gets sold off as basically a, a binge on one night. And Ragel only has vague memories of what happened. It's, 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 it's all kind of fuzzy. And it's not really clear, even through the end of the story, how much of this was manipulated or his memory was wiped or chemically induced or how much that Ragel just kind of always resorts back to the 1950s. And I'll, I'll talk about that more in the next episode because to, to go into this too much would, would kind of give away some some important plot points. He does remember a few things. He remembers like the phone book. He remembers a man named Jack Daniels. He doesn't remember his whiskey, but he remembers a man named Jack Daniels. And he remembers they tried to get up a hill, but that's about it. So it's all very fuzzy to him. And these city maintenance trucks are right outside the house. And these are the sort of the people that work in Bill Black's department, the water department. In Raggle's mind, they're probably sent to keep an eye on him, and it's a little ambiguous whether that's what they're there for, but we can assume that they were there basically to make sure Raggle didn't try to bolt again. So Raggle goes back to his regular routine. He even picks up the newspaper, and he starts looking at the puzzle, and, you know, what else is he supposed to do in this situation? So he just kind of goes back to work, and his work is essentially to do this newspaper contest and to find out where the little green man is going to be each day. Now, at one point, Ragel stares at his name in print, and he's more convinced than ever that whatever he does is of vital importance to the entire human race, and that he's really the center of, of some kind of universe. He goes to work. He does his work until, well, he doesn't really go to work, but he works in the home or on the newspaper contest till noon, and then Junie Black appears. And she says that she's very upset with Bill for what he did to Ragel and that she promised to leave him. She wants to start a relationship with Ragel. Raggle's very intrigued by this. He's developed an attraction for her. Even love. At one point he says he loves her. He wants to seduce her. Now, what does... I mean, this plot point gets kind of dropped. I mean, it is... You can kind of explain it away, but... You know, it seems that Junie Black is being sent to... bring, Or, or this whole Junie Black character is part of what's there to kind of tie Raggle to this 1950s world and by upgrading the relationship it becomes just another means that's going to tie him to this neighborhood and this is this life that he lives as you know this man doing these contests now as she leaves Margot scolds him for setting her sights so low another kind of running joke in this novel is just how kind of bimbo-ish Junie Black is good looking but childish and stupid and, and naive but without most of the details of his trip in his mind, it really does seem to be an alcoholic blackout. Ragel is very confused about what's going on in his life and what's been happening to him. His main obsession at this point is really trying to piece together what has happened to him. Quote, he felt a strong reflexive aversion to them, the, the city maintenance workers. It bordered on fear. What he did not... 
and he did not know why. He tried to think back to remember what had happened to him, what he had done, what had been done to him, the olive green trucks, the running, the crawling, an attempt somewhere along the line to hide in something valuable he'd found, but which had slipped or been taken away. So anyways, uh, he just goes back to work at this point. And then June Black calls him the next morning, telling him that she's prepared to go to the lawyer the very next day to divorce Bill Black and to commit to marrying him. He asks about the civil defense class, though, thinking, well, I'll just talk to you at the civil defense class. And she says, well, I'm not going. And he's a bit confused here because he thought that the civil defense class was all an excuse for a tryst with, with him. So he begins to have second thoughts about going to the class. So he, he tells June he really wants to see her, and he ends the conversation. And soon after, Mrs. Keitelbein calls about the civil defense course, and Ragel tries to get out of it. But she eventually talks him into coming anyway. She's very insistent. And that afternoon, he goes to the CD course. And it's all very, very odd. In, in a way, the course seems to revolve around him. He's the guest speaker. And he's, you know, it's very important that he's kind of reports on World War II, which it's not really clear why a soldier who served in World War II would be that important for a civil defense course, especially because in 1959, World War II veterans would have been a dime a dozen in in suburban neighborhoods. You know, the United States mobilized, I think, something like 15, almost 20 percent of of adult men into the military. So there would have been all over. So there's no reason Raggle Gum would have it would have been so important that he reports on World War Two, but it, it's presented as a very important thing by Mrs. Keitelbein. And even when she gives a speech, so she before Raggle Gum is supposed to talk, she gives a speech about the importance of civil defense. And the speech itself is very, very wild, actually. Let's see if I can find it. So she says, um, in our last class, Someone raised a question concerning the impossibility of our intercepting all the enemy missiles in the event of a full-scale surprise attack on America. This is quite true. We know that we could not possibly shoot down all the missiles. A percentage of them will get through. This is the dreadful truth, and we have to face it and deal with it accordingly. If war should break out, we would be faced at best with terrible ruin. Dead and dying in the tens of millions. Cities into rubble. Radioactive fallout. Contaminated crops. Germ plasma for future generations irretrievably damaged. At best, we would have a disaster on a scale never before seen on Earth. The funds appropriated by our government for defense, which seems such a burden and a drain on us, would be a drop in the bucket compared with this catastrophe. And then later on, she says, we might exhaust our anti-missile missiles within the first few hours of the war and then find that the enemy did not plan to win the war on the base of a single vast attack analogous to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but planned rather to win by a sort of hydrogen nibbling away over a period of near years if necessary. And she goes on like this with a kind of a, it's just a way too specific for a general conversation about civil defense and, and community preparedness. It's, it's, the details are all very precise. And this, to the reader and to Raggle Gum, is a very bizarre thing. And the next thing that happens is Cardobine not only talks about the fact that after the war goes on, we're going to have to move underground and have underground factories. She actually shows him a model of a factory and Raggle Gum is able to announce right away what the factory produces. And he identifies it as a processor for, for ore. And she says, have you ever seen this factory before, Mr. Gum? And it, it's just strangely familiar. So this is a very odd 
meeting of the civil defense um, folks. So now th there's a little bit here to talk about. Um, now Dick has played with this idea of automation during wartime and underground production. It's it's in a lot of his short stories at this time, and it comes up in a handful of novels too. It's in to a degree in Deus Ares. It's certainly in all the stories that have autofac, the auto automatic factory, the robot factory. You have a story called The Defenders, in which people go underground to after a war. You have the penultimate truth, where the same thing happens. So this is something Dick played with a lot. It's it's an important theme in a lot of his fiction is is the whole theme of automation and the danger of automation, particularly in the context of war and the kind of the focus on war production and what that does to our communities and our politics and our freedom. Now he leaves the course fairly baffled and starts to think about what to do next. Does he try to test the limits again or does he stay content here? I mean, he's going to get the hot girl if he decides to stay. You know, in a way, we start to believe that Red Juni Black's entire role here is to be one of several anchors for, for Raggle Gum, a plotted and planned anchor. In fact, in a way, everyone in this whole town, willing or not, part of this is there to tie Raggle Gum to the place. They're, they're playing a role. Now, not everyone is doing it consciously, of course. I mean, certainly Vic isn't, and Margot doesn't seem to be doing that, Sam either. So he goes to see Vic, who he trusts, and he talks to Vic in a secret place. And he really thinks he has, he got close to escape last time. He doesn't really know the details, of course, because it's been forgotten, but he thinks he can get away. He asks about the interstate rigs that seem to deliver, that, or that do deliver produce to the grocery store. They must be from some real location because the food can't be faked. Vic announces that they, they seem to go really far out to where is unclear. And, and this is, if you haven't been paying attention, you'll notice it's never been mentioned where this where this town is, right? And Vic can't really say where it goes, just that it's out there somewhere. It comes from a from far away. And the plan then is to try to sneak onto the truck and use it to escape because the trucks go back and forth all the time. Vic suggests that maybe he should just marry and settle with someone. He he says he says he doesn't like June Black, but he does say that his one of the grocery store workers, a woman named Liz, I think would be a good match for him but Vic eventually does agree to help him get onto one of the trucks now meanwhile Bill Black is talking to a man named Nis Mr. Neroni and the talk focuses mostly on Ragel's recent actions and his escape attempt but really on his interactions with Mrs. Keitelbeim Bill doesn't know her name for sure he thinks it's Kesselman but so again we get this confusion of whether Keitelbeim or Kesselman and that they seem to look alike are they the same people but it's an important distinction or that these two characters, you know, who these two people are and what are their motives. The woman Bill remembers was, anyways, was, was part of their conspiracy. He, he trusts this woman he, and he thinks she's running the civil defense course. So she's, he's not that worried about this Mrs. Keitelbeim slash Mrs. Kesselman. Now, Bill, though, is really beginning to panic because he realizes a much more serious problem than this. Kesselman, Keitelbeim character, and that is he can't control Raggle anymore, and that Raggle is going sane and maybe irrevocably sane. Now, Vic and Raggle are giving their goodbyes to Margot. They're basically going to attempt to get Raggle off and away from Bill Black and whoever else might be a threat to him and away from those maintenance workers. So what they do is they trap the driver, Ted, I think his name is, into the back of the truck. 
which is one of these big 18-wheel rigs. And then they just begin driving around town and they get away without any trouble. Now, the description of what they pass is another of interesting commentary by Dick about suburbia. And in a way, this novel has a lot to say about suburbia. It's... Well, I'll just read it to you. So, quote, the houses became fewer. The truck passed gas stations, tawdry cafes, ice cream stands, and motels. The dreary parade of motels. As if, Regal thought, we had already gone a thousand miles and we're now just entering a strange town. Nothing is so alien, so bleak and unfriendly as that strip of gas stations. Cut rate gas stations and motels on the rim of your own city. You fail to recognize it. And at the same time, you have to collapse it to your bosom. Not just for one night, but for as long as you intend to live where you are. And then later on, uh, like on the next page, on and on they drove. The countryside became more monotonous, fields, rolling hills, everything featureless with advertising signs stuck in intervals. And then without warning, the hills flattened and they found themselves rolling down long, straight grades. And we get the sense that this is really Dick commenting on California and the world, the suburban world that he lived in and was rapidly expanding in the 1950s. Now, we can sort of identify a theme here, and it, it seems to be this relationship between control and life in suburbia. And there's a couple things. One is this, the arbitrariness of suburbia. Dick did this in The Commuter and other stories, too, that it's just interchangeable. It doesn't matter. It's very generic, right? Everything is kind of the same. Every motel room is the same. Every restaurant's the same. But more than that, when we look at the whole story, as a, the plot as a whole, we have Regal Gump being controlled by suburbia. It becomes a means of exploiting his labor, of keeping him. Now, it's not quite clear what he's doing yet to, to the reader at this point in the story. And it's quite, pretty late in the book. Um, but, you know, there's relationship between suburbia and control, right? And that it's part of the surveillance state. I, I think this is a key point in this novel, a key thematic point. So anyway, as they drive on, they debate what they're going to do. Should they free Ted? Should they stop for the night? And they look in the glove compartment and they find various things, some credit cards and stuff. But most most strange of what they find is a strip of paper that says on it, one happy world in all caps. Vic thinks it must be the bumper for the for the bumper of the car. And so they stop the car, they stop the truck and they get out and they kind of knock on the side of the of the, the rig, talk to Ted. And Wrangle is first surprised that that this man seems to know him by name. It's like, oh, sorry, Mr. Gum, or, you know, he talks to, he dresses him as Mr. Gum. So it's one, yet again, another character that knows everything about Regal, knows him by name. Ted warns them that the driving of this rig is hard, that they, they're probably not trained to do it, but also, and that they should release him. He also tells them that they'll be shot if they don't have that sign, the One Happy World sign on their bumper. He teaches them that credit cards are obsolete, diesel fuel is obsolete, and so there's so much different. I mean, the ra- it's radically different from the world they're living in. It's not just a little tweak here. And they eventually let him go after talking to him, and he, he goes off down the road. The two then drive on a little bit, and then they they decide to visit a local diner after passing a checkpoint. And at the diner, they learn more strange things. One they learn is that the prices are strange. The prices are all like 1.5 or 0.5, 2 doesn't make sense it's not dollars and cents the food is, is wrong they don't know what like pile mode is the local people talk in a strange sort of pigeon english a strange accent and they they have strange tattoos and the young people kind of act in a kind of weird way 
they're very sort of tribal looking. At one point, I think it's in the next chapter, he actually says that they look like West African natives. They try to pay in paper money, and the waitress, waitress is confused at first, and one of the people say, well, you can still use it, it's still convertible. So she takes the money, and at this point, two young men, these kind of weird local young people, arrive and call them lunatics. And that's how chapter, I guess it's 12 ends. So, so that does it for chapters 10 through 12 of Time on a Joint. There's only two chapters left in the story, and they're mostly exposition. They're mostly kind of revealing the secret. I guess Dick didn't feel he had room to kind of allow this mystery to be revealed a little more organically. It's a bit rushed, the last two chapters. A lot, there's a lot we don't know, right? We don't know why Raglgum has been put in this situation, why this world was invented, how it works, who's real, who's not, you know, you know, Besides Bill Black, who's in on the conspiracy, these are things we don't know. And now most of this is answered in the next two chapters. But a lot still has happened. The characters have broken free from the zoo that they've been trapped in for as long as that they remember. They're firmly in the real world now, and but they quickly learn how much everything has changed. It's clear that they're in the 1990s. They're not in 1959 anymore. And it's not just that they're being watched that they realize. It's that their entire world has been false down to even the details it's been constructed and very distinct from the reality that is out there is very distinct from the reality that they've experienced all along the major metaphysical question dick asks in this part of the book and really throughout the whole book is that if the world we live in is real is this do we call it real based on our experience and our subjectivity or is it real based on some objective point of view and for much of the novel it doesn't really matter because everything that happens in Regal Gump happens within a universe which has its own rules, that has its own logic, that makes sense. It's only when they escape their position that it becomes profoundly important that they don't understand where they're at and that it's different. Why is this entire world been constructed around them? So, you know, had they never broken free or had that, that had their had their glimpse of reality not been tarnished at some point, they would have been completely content going on in the world. That would have been all they've known, right? It's the same way like with cultures emerge, right? Kids who are raised in a Christian culture, you know, they, they don't know a thing about Islam, right? That's completely natural to them to believe Jesus is alive. Kids raised in another cultural religious context have a different kind of subjectivity that comes out of that. And they don't, until they're older and maybe learn more about the world, they don't realize that there is something else out there. And, you know, Raggle is kind of like all of us. We're, we're all in Raggle Gump's position to some degree, right? Even the, as well-educated as we might think we are about the rest of the world, we, we're still bound by our subjectivity. So there is kind of a universality of the experience of Raggle Gump's ha that he's having, even if the overall plot doesn't really happen to us, right? We're not really enslaved by a government conspiracy for whatever weird reason. Anyways, the, the final answers to the questions of why Raggle Gum has been put in this false town, all these answers will come in the next two chapters, trust me. But uh, you'll have to wait for the next episode about that. Um, I'll also try to talk at length about my thematic summary of, of the novel. So anyways, thanks for listening to this episode of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. If you have any comments about Time Out of Joint or the philosophy behind it or 
you know, just the novel in general, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave a comment below. And I'll be back in, with the finale of my review of Time on a Joint. So thanks again for listening. Imposes my tired thoughts once on that leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.